0: Gentlemen, welcome back. We're here with another episode, season two. And today we've got on anabology. Anabology, welcome. Thanks for coming on.
1: Hey, what's up, man? It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, likewise. You know, I've been really interested in your content. Very unique, um, somewhat outlandish, some would say, in terms of experiments that you're doing. But, you know, I like that you're actually doing the experiments instead of, you know, being an armchair intellectual like most people on Twitter and just talking about it. But uh, if you'd want to give people just a little bit of your background, you know how you got into this space of doing some relatively uh, fringe uh, kind of experimentation, and honestly, just ideas in general.
1: Yeah, so I think I kind of started uh, in this space like from the framework of just like self experimentation from the very beginning. So originally, um, you know, I was in college and I just was doing like engineering or, or whatever you know the uh, kind of society directs just the average male towards. And then, and then I just like, you know, I just did not care about any of it. And then I found like longevity forums online and people were talking about like life extension and like taking nootropics and being smarter and, and just experimenting on themselves. And like, I was like, that's super appealing. And I just tried stuff and I felt like amazing. Like I tried just random nootropics off of like sketchy internet websites. And, um, and you know, some of them seem to work, some of them seem to not. And I was just got like super hooked and obsessed with it. Like, uh, kind of like addictive, I guess, like reading into the papers and just like figuring out how my body works and how like these things are going to respond to my body. Um, But I never like, I wasn't super deep into it or super um, like, I don't know. It's really until more recently, I think, because uh, I ended up doing my, starting my PhD and I'm working on kind of like protein water interactions, but I don't need to go into that uh, right now. And I'm I'm working on um, with a biotech company so kind of I'm, I'm seeing like both sides, like the industry and like academic sides where we're trying to get through, like we're trying to replicate studies so that we can push something through to the, the clinic. And then I find that basically like 90 plus percent of studies that we end up doing just like as they're written do not work when you try and replicate them. So it really like made me question like, okay, what is like the validity of all this science? Like, Why, why is like none of this science actually real when I go and try and do it myself? So like, I think that's why uh, I see stuff like, you know, there's big randomized control trials that say, oh, we added a, you know, a teaspoon of corn oil to somebody's diet in a day, and they got slightly more insulin sensitive. It's like, well, okay, you know, the people who are like, poofa advocates can look at that and be like, wow, poofas are healthy but then, but then I go and try it and now I get migraines. So it's like another just study that I tried to replicate that I cannot. And then the only way forward, I think for me is to just do self-experimentation and like the more and more I like, you know, exist in science. I find that like even the most like, you know, base level things that people assume like sugar is bad. It is just completely false. (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, I've been in this space probably like seven or eight years of uh, just kind of self experimentation, but only in academic and you know biotech industry for a couple of years now.
0: Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, you know I think that everyone has that first kind of coming to God moment when they find an actually efficacious nootropic. I mean, I remember my my first one was ginkgo biloba, just so mild, mm-hmm. but to this day it's my favorite cognitive enhancer, and that realization it's like, oh, you know, I can take things into my own hands. Like, I really have some manipulative capabilities over my biology. But, you know, that's really interesting in terms of you being at the forefront of both the private and, you know, public science Mm -hmm. industry to an extent and being able to see these studies behind the veil. Now, why do you think, like, what variables are involved that make studies so irreplicable and, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously very easy to push for one way or another? I mean, like, I'm not even nearly to the depth of, of scientific rigor that you are or a lot of people are, but it's like, it's so easy to find a study that is either for or against your point of view. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's it's ridiculous. Like confirmation bias is so simple. What what are those variables you think?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of them are like literal incompetency of academics. So like, <laughs> y- like you, uh you reach out to an author. You're like, Hey, I couldn't replicate your paper. How did you do this? And they're like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, it was a grad student who did this like five years ago and now he's gone and he didn't log any of his data. So like, I don't know, we published, like we're happy we got a publication. So (laughs) I think that's like a lot of the cases. I mean, some of them are really just biased. So like to your point of uh, you can always find a paper that's for or against um, there, there are like big kind of biases that you do see that uh, really guide results. So like, I think it's like the naturalistic fallacy that natural, like the something natural is just good by default. So uh, you can find, say, uh, I'll take the example of like sulforaphane. Um So sulforaphane is something that's found in broccoli, right? And, or like cruciferous vegetables. And, and, you know, it's in broccoli, it's in something green. So it must be good is kind of the ideas. So then you look at the studies and you know, what it does is it activates, I believe, like NRF2, which is like kind of a, an antioxidant response uh, to like a, a toxin kind of like oxidant in injury. But then they say, hey, this is good. You increase the total antioxidant capacity of your cell. You, you, uh, you know, stimulated this like protective pathway, but it's like you're protecting against the toxin, yet their conclusion <laughs> is it's good. So then, but then, you know, you could take the exact opposite mechanism and then, you know, do something that is an antioxidant. And then they say, oh, look, it's an antioxidant. It reduced NRF2 activation and therefore it's good. So it's like the exact same mechanism, you know, but both things, if they're from a plant, it's good. And I think that the, there's like similar things where, um, you know, if it's something that just by default is bad, like, you know, uh, you know, even in the case of stuff like glyphosate or something like glyphosate could do the exact same thing as, as uh, you know, the, the sulforaphane, like via NRF two or, or whatever pathway. Uh, but because it's not natural, it's deep by default bad. So like, it, you know, I, I, obviously I think glyphosate is bad in high quantities, but like there's, there's always like a, a bias um, in all of that. And then, and then I think Ray Pete, there's like a, if you go on chadnetwiki.org, you can see all of his interviews and there's like a big section of interviews called politics and science. And this is really like where he goes into kind of all of the, you know, history of, of like, why, okay, why are polyunsaturated fats like so promoted as they are? And a lot of them are really like these like political motives, like past just incompetency or, or pure like bias or, you know, both of those are kind of incompetency, but like the, there definitely are political motives, like, or uh, economic motives. You know, they have to sell polyunsaturated fats unless they're, uh, unless their businesses are going to die. So, um,
0: yeah. Interesting. You, you touched on a number of things there. Uh, going back to what you were saying about the naturalistic fallacy, it is so—it's so funny to me, right? Uh, there's the lack of nuance that's entertained in this space. You know, a great example is methylene blue. Like, I'm, I'm a huge fan of methylene blue. I found it to be really effective in dealing with some cognitive issues that I had. But uh, it's inher- It's like the most unnatural substance ever, right? It's like the first mm-hmm. unnaturally synthesized drug. Yet you have Liver King, who's the the you know champion of the ancestral tenets. <laughs> Mr. Au Natural, and in his most recent post, he's talking about methylene blue. So yeah, it is it's very wishy-washy with that. Um, I know for you, for example, and this is something we'll discuss, um, but it seems that you got a little bit of flack for, you know, having pasteurized orange juice, right? The, the frozen orange juice cans. And you're like, listen, like fundamentally it's the same thing. Sure, maybe there's a few bells and whistles that are missing because it's pasteurized and processed. But um, I, I kinda like that just because it's it's going against the the zeitgeist of I guess this space of like everything needs to be super it's almost like it's almost like an aesthetic you know it's more for aesthetic purposes than it is actually for biological purposes but um speaking of orange juice you know let's discuss that that's how I originally kind of got attuned to your account you were drinking a copious amount of orange juice and in Mm -hmm. your honor I've drank nothing but uh fruit juice and gelatin this morning but uh how that st- or like how that uh, personal experiment come about? You know, what was your thought process going into that? Was there ever a time that you were on the other end of that spectrum and you kind of bought mm-hmm. into the high sugar is bad, especially fructose?
1: Oh yeah, I've been on all sides of this. I mean, there were there were times where I was doing mega doses of omega threes because I thought like I wanted to <laughs> stop, you know suppress my immune system, and I was like avoiding sugar like the plague, just like downing avocados. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but, yeah, that was that was definitely a time but um and also before you know we go into the orange juice thing i think one thing that's super interesting about just the outcome of the experiment that i had was that uh tropicana just like completely destroyed me like i could not drink tropicana it felt really bad on it but then i tried minute maid and i felt perfect so it's like (laughs) so maybe like the pasteurized like stuff, like part of it, you know, people attribute their bad feelings to pasteurize because they get like something out of just a processed looking bottle. And then they're like, oh, anything pasteurized is bad, but maybe it's actually like the citric acid in it or, or some other just like component that's giving you an issue. Like citric acid is produced by black mold, I believe. So yeah. like, if there's any residue from <laughs> like added citric acid, then you're probably going to have some issues. Um, but yeah, so for the uh, orange juice diet, that was kind of proceeded on the honey diet which was my attempt to kind of biohack my way into losing weight but eating more so essentially uh, there were some people like fire in a bottle and uh, x fat loss on twitter and uh, these people x fat loss for example he was doing like some keto type diet where he was eating a lot of food um or just a normal amount of food like you know a few couple thousand calories for you know, eight years and was just gaining weight. Ended up over three hundred pounds, and then he decided, okay, well, I am going to try restricting protein and only eating heavy cream and just eating as much as I possibly can. And he did that, so he ate more calories. He's eating like four thousand five hundred calories a day of like heavy cream, basically, and he just was melting off weight, like three hundred pounds to two hundred and thirty pounds. So, like obviously, in obese people, there are st- there are diets like this where you can just melt weight and eat more. And fire in a bottle is another example of this, like no ad libidum feeding, no calorie restriction, but now he's restricting protein and doing like a high starch kind of low fat diet and losing weight. But these are both like in previously obese people, right? So maybe it's different once you become lean. Like if a lean person restricts protein, then, you know, your body might start losing muscle or something. Um, So I was trying to find like a, a medium between that where like you could, you could maybe, do something that like replicates the mechanism of these like really efficacious diets for obese people, but, and like still eat as much or even like more than, than what you actually want to eat, but still like lose weight and be a little bit leaner. Um, and the reason why I wanted to lose weight is actually a little bit funny is, is I, I was like, I don't really like the first thought that I had was, I don't believe that ice cream makes you fat. So I started eating 6,000 calories of ice cream a day and then I got (laughs) fat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah i gained i gained like about 10 pounds or something and i wanted to just like melt that without eating any less food so uh so yeah i started with the honey diet and, and essentially like the idea around the honey diet uh is that uh there's there were some studies back in like both the 1980s and early 2000s where and it's been replicated multiple times now where they gave mice instead of drinking water coca-cola so they just gave them unlimited sugar and the mice that got Coca-Cola obviously wanted more Coca-Cola. So they just drank like a ridiculous amount and compared to the other, like the control groups, they drank like four times the calories and gained zero weight. So I was like, there's something special about like the sugar or caffeine or something here, right? Like, you know, it's, it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy that you can eat four times the calories despite like everybody saying calories in calories out. And you, and the only way you can increase calories out is by exercising your ass off, like just resting four times the amount of calories burned. So then I, I look, looked into what the actual mechanism of that is and was trying to figure it out. And the, the key, uh, thing that's like consistent between all these diets. So like the overfeeding of sugar, the restricting of protein, uh, with either high fat or high carb, in the case of fire in a bottle and, uh, or ex fat loss in fire in a bottle. Um, the key thing there is, is uh, the induction of this factor called FGF21. So there was a recent study by the Lamming Lab where they restricted the amino acid isoleucine and the mice lived like 30% longer. They had a much longer lifespan. And uh, there was another study where uh, I believe they, I think this was another study where they, where they knocked out or reduced FGF21 which is induced by isoleucine restriction and it ended the life extending effects. So you need to, uh, so it's a little convoluted, right? But restricting protein, but more specifically this one amino acid induces this one factor that extends life. But another thing the factor does is it increases your metabolic rate. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the actual, uh, overfeeding of sugar or fat also induces FGF 21. So uh, essentially, in, in this kind of framework, protein inhibits a factor that increases your metabolic rate. Fat and carbs both increase this factor that increases your metabolic rate. And, um, and then carbs do it most strongly. So fat does it a little bit, but sugar does it the most strongly. Uh, so the idea here is that like the, the ideal diet are so- centered around this like life-extending ext- pro-metabolic factor is a really high-sugar diet with low protein. But as like a lean individual who wants to have, you know, a solid hormonal profile, you still need fat and you still need protein, right? Like you can't really get around that. So then I was like looking into, okay, what are like the time frames that these things happen in? If you look at uh, the blood levels of triglycerides and, you know, LDL and, and or uh, I guess VLDL rather and you know just the fats in your blood free fatty acids after you eat a high fat meal like they last over 12 hours like even the you know 12 hour kind of like fasting window they tell you to get a blood test like sometimes it even lasts longer than that so uh so you need to like whenever you eat fat it lasts a long time same thing with protein it lasts quite a while like the amino acids in your blood last last a a long time but sugar if you eat it in isolation your blood sugar goes back down to baseline within like three hours right So I use that idea to kind of set up the ideal diet where, you know, I can use this timing to get the good effects of this, you know, pro metabolic factor induction and eat a ton of calories without having to sacrifice on protein or fat. So the the idea around the diet was in the first part of the day, then eat as much sugar as I possibly can and, you know, induce this, this factor and then fast from like three to seven. So let my blood sugar go back down to baseline and then eat all the protein and fat. And both protein and fat do inhibit the utilization of carbohydrate. It's called the uh, Randall cycle if you want to go into the mechanistic detail. But if you, one thing I noticed is, is I did the continuous glucose monitor with this diet to make sure that the stuff I was thinking actually was working where like my blood sugar will go back to baseline and, and all that stuff. And it, and it seems like it did. But if at dinner I ate a meal where I had like, you know, 100 extra calories of sugar at dinner, where usually I would do like a low carb dinner, my blood sugar would be a little bit higher all night. It would be, you know, at night, usually it would be around like 90 or, or 85 or something like that. But if I ate 100 calories of sugar for, you know, 13 hours, my blood sugar would be like at about 100. Whereas I could handle like on the continuous glucose monitor 2000 calories of sugar when it was in isolation and it would go back to baseline like immediately within a couple hours. So, like, I guess the keys here are, are that. You know, fat and protein inhibit the utilization of carbohydrate. Your metabolism is way more responsive uh, and, you know, changes uh, your metabolic rate if you eat carbohydrate in isolation. Um, and then the, the very like last key here is uh, there was one study where they gave starch and sugar to mice and the, in the same kind of like caloric, uh, you know, ratios with all the other macros. And the ones that ate sugar lost weight. The ones that ate the controlled diet, you know, had a normal trajectory of weight. And then the ones that ate starch gained weight. So, so essentially it needs to be sugar. It also needed not to be starch.
0: Interesting.
1: So that's, that's like a really convoluted way, but it seems like it worked. I lost about 10 pounds. Most of my hormones improved and I don't think I became diabetic. So <laughs>
0: um, what, uh, what was that time frame that you lost those 10 pounds?
1: It was about, so it was about a month and a half, I think.
0: Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's actually so pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. And, and I wasn't, um, and I was eating like as much as I possibly could. Like by the end I was, I literally like didn't want to finish the honey. Like it, I was just not hungry. <laughs> it was just too much, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was a pound it's- of honey a day, uh, a, a half pound of dates, you know, maybe some extra sugar, like a root beer or something if I wanted to during the day. Um, and, and then I would fast for a few hours and then I would eat a dinner of about a pound of beef and pound of vegetables, pound of mushrooms, like just things in pound quantities. I would eat no food less than a pound.
0: <laughs> I like it. That's my style. You know, that's really interesting. And I'm curious what role bio-individuality plays here. You know, I was talking to mm-hmm. someone a while ago and they were kind of explaining that some people are pre- like preferentially um, oxidized carbs better than fats. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a better fuel source for them. And I wasn't able to dive deep enough to, Garner an opinion on that. But in my case, you know, I used to be more into the kind of weightlifting space and, you know, bodybuilding, if that's what you want to call it. And everybody's like solution to getting lean quick was cutting out carbs, right? Mm-hmm. It was always cutting out carbs. When people were doing weight cuts for jujitsu, cut out carbs. Um, I never did well with that. I always got fatter the more that I included mm-hmm. fat in my diet, even when controlling for that caloric, you know, that caloric um, homeostasis by cutting out carbs. Now I come here and I'm having liters of fruit juice a day. I'm literally, no joke, having probably um, five thousand to seven thousand calories worth of dates every single week. I'm, I'm averaging, you know, a thousand calories of dates a day, and I immediately get lean. And most interestingly, I completely lose the visceral fat and you know my typical fat accumulation around you know the saddlebags and like lower abdomen. And it was so baffling to me. And that was, you know, when I started kind of entertaining that idea after years of uh, the uh, opposite opinion saying that, you know, carbs are bad for you and stuff. Like, is there a role that, you know, why is it that some people, you know, try to utilize carbohydrates and they get fat, like they get fat when they eat a bunch of carbs and they feel like shit, they get brain fog. I have some ideas, but I'd like to hear your opinion on that. I
1: I think that one thing is people don't know what a carb is. Like... (laughs) Like a lot of times when people say they're eating carbs, they're actually like eating some processed food that has like soybean oil added to it. And then, yeah. you know, once you're, if you, if you look at, I think that a hyperlipid, so like there's this hyperlipid blog, uh, I think his name is Peter in in Norfolk, I, I believe. And, uh, or maybe that's just his Twitter name. I don't know if it's his real last name, but anyway, he's done a pretty good job in, in multiple of his, his blog posts where he's shown that you know, how fat animals become, regardless of like carbohydrate and other things in their diet, it seems to be proportional to the amount of linoleic acid. So the the polyunsaturated fat they consume. And, and even it, it's even different, like between one and 2% of your diet, like the the ones that eat 2% linoleic acid are def- definitively fatter than, than uh, the 1%. So like, if you're eating carbs, and then there's like a little bit of poof is added to it, it definitely adds up. And the second thing is, is like the starch kind of study right? When, when people say carbs, like they may be thinking of like, you know, something like pasta where maybe the gluten is, is, uh, inflaming, inflaming their gut, or they're eating like potatoes and the potatoes are like causing inflammation because of undercooked starch. And, you know, so I, I think that like, for one, um, like sugar is very different from like the actual starches and, um, and things that people think are carbs are not carbs. Um, and then the other thing is like There, there were uh, a lot of studies that have been done in mice where they give a protein source of a one casein and they get fat on said diet. And then they give them egg white protein instead, which doesn't inflame the gut. And then they don't, they do not get fat. Right. And obviously a two casein mitigates this, but, um, but the a one casein protein inflaming the gut with the exact same caloric intake. Uh, causes people to become fat. So I think that if the carbs are inflaming the gut, that could be causative in any fat gain, right? Which again, mm-hmm. is the case for a lot of people with uh, things like pasta. And and this is where like the bioindividuality and self-experimentation comes in again. Uh, I think that the best way to figure out if something works for you or not is just to do a very, very high dose of it for yourself, like in, in a relatively <laughs> safe way. So like, so like uh, I tried the potato diet where I was eating like three, four pounds of potatoes in a day. And so did my girlfriend yeah. and both of us like on that, on that diet just felt like absolutely terrible. We were getting headaches, like <laughs> bloated. It was just like the worst thing ever it did not, did not work for us. And we were boiling the potatoes for like, you know, an hour long and, mm-hmm. and then like cooking them and roasting them after. So like, we definitely cook them very well, but uh, just, potatoes do not agree with us. And, and you know, I think that that tells you the chronic kind of toxicity of it as well, because I, w- I would have days where I wake up and I have like a little bit of a headache and I'm like, why do I have a headache? Like I did everything right. But what I had at dinner the night before was like a potato. But I, I never knew that that was the causative factor until I did the super high dose of it. So, yeah. so I think that like, I, th- I think that sugar in general, is less like problematic from that perspective. Like I, I see way more people be able to tolerate sugar than something like a potato or a pasta or carbs. um, Like other, other things that people consider carbs, but there are issues uh, with the sugar as well, like with the sugar uh, containing vehicles as well. Right? Like there's a lot of fermentable aspects of like orange juice or dates, even that can cause people with, with like preexisting SIBO to, to, you know, have some gut issues. So I think the gut mediates a lot of the effects here.
0: I couldn't agree more. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, Stan Efferding, he kind of championed the vertical diet where it's pretty much just ground like red meat, lean red meat and uh, white rice. And I always found that very interesting. You know, white rice is so demonized. I found that out of all the carbohydrate sources, if I'm looking for just pure fuel, there's, there's nothing better than processed mm-hmm. white rice and rice noodles, especially when I soak it. Um, but that, that's really interesting. It's, you know, we see with protein too, right? Uh, for those that prioritize protein, they use like peanut butter as a protein source. And yeah. I mean, like, look at, look at, first of all, the macronutrient ratio in peanut butter. That's, that's not a protein source. It's ridiculous. But uh, I want to circle back on FTF-21, you know, this protein and, and the correlating gene with it. And, you know, you saying that it increased the metabolic rate as well as, did you say that it, it inhibits isoleucine? Uh, absorption or, or what is its role with isoleucine?
1: Yeah. So isoleucine inhibits FGF21. Oh, isoleucine uh, so, inhibits FGF21.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. So, so if you, if you intake proteins that have, and isoleucine is a branched chain amino acid, it's a BCAA. So if you, if you intake proteins that are like, you know, milk protein, whey, whatever, it, it, it can inhibit the FGF21 and it, and it happens that it does it very strongly. Like you can overfeed on carbohydrate and eat some protein with it, and then you don't get the metabolic response to it uh, via FGF 21. So, you know, you kind of have to segregate them if you want your metabolism to be more flexible, but it's not to say that like you can't eat them together. The only thing that you have to do if you eat them together is watch your calories, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't want to watch your calories, you kind of have to escape the metabolic swamp and go to like a macro extreme where you're doing like only carbs or only fat, for example.
0: Interesting. Uh, very, very interesting. And, you know, you mentioned how that's kind of being discussed in the longevity space. And we know that a low protein diet, <clears throat> at least in the general consensus, is correlated with with longevity. And they typically point to like m- mTOR, right? <clears throat> Avoiding excessive mTOR stimulus inhibiting mTOR. Do you think this plays a role here with, you know, inhibiting isoleucine uh, in your diet? Or do you think it's a completely different no, mechanism? At I play? think
1: it sure. is different. So, I mean, mTOR, like for sure, inhibition of mTOR does extend lifespan right like rapamycin is the most you know i I was like i'm the kind of guy who goes into something and i don't believe like the literature consensus like immediately and then i just like you know try and figure out like a way out of it and i'm like this is this is the actual like real mechanism and everyone else is wrong but like rapamycin Mm -hmm. i did that once and then every single statement that i even tried to make that was uh like against it just immediately got proven wrong. Like, so, so rapamycin does extend lifespan by like a little bit, right? Like 20%, uh, in, in mice, I think, but, but mTOR isn't mediating the isoleucine restriction, I think. So, Mm -hmm. uh, branched amino acids do activate mTOR, but leucine restriction, um, didn't extend lifespan in the same way that isoleucine restriction does. And leucine activates mTOR very strongly. Gotcha. So. So that means that isoleucine like probably does not work through mTOR. And I think that it works more through something like FGF 21.
0: Okay. Very interesting. And, you know, on the discussion of the longevity space and their emphasis on, you know, inhibiting protein consumption among other things and caloric restriction, you know, it sounds like you share some views with, let's just take, you know, David Sinclair, for example, Um, (laughs) you know, resveratrol aside, but um, the issue that I have with the longevity space and looking into a lot of these longevity inducing, you know, ingredients, uh, you know, spermidine, fisetin, uh, mm-hmm. you know, resveratrol, uh, ret- mice and all these things is like uh, kind of, you know, simple, simplistically speaking, they seem to inhibit vitality in the short term to give you a longer lifespan. And you kind of see, like, if I look at David Sinclair, I'm not like, wow, this is an aspirational guy. Like, I want to look like him and mm-hmm. feel like him when I'm in, in my fifties and they discuss, you know, kind of inhibiting, um, androgen receptor expression, you know, making like keeping your androgens low for prostate health. And to me, that doesn't sound like a fair trade off. Now, in your case, there, there's some crossover in terms of, you know, protein, um, you know, lowering protein in your diet, but, you know, mechanistic and fundamentally speaking, it, it's very different, right? Cause all of these guys are also on the, you know, keto low carb movement. So hmm. what do you think is the primary misconception that they may have the primary differences in opinion between your approach and the traditional like low carb David Sinclair approach mm-hmm. uh, one meal a day like where is that distinction being made
1: Oh I don't think they look at the data like <laughs> I've I've literally plotted just like a I've t- there's a database called drug age and uh, it essentially it, it's called drug age D R U G A G E Okay. And uh, in the drug age database, uh, up, up until I think like 2017, I think that was when it was published or something, they essentially went through with like a systematic approach and looked at all of like the lifespan studies ah. that have been done in mammals. And certain things extend life in mammals, and certain things are very well replicated to extend life in mammals, and certain things shorten life in mammals. And, and the things like resveratrol, like just do not extend life um quercetin for example is something that people think works similar to facetin and i believe quercetin actually uh shortened lifespan in mice metformin does not increase lifespan like (laughs) if you look at the data like these things just like don't pan out uh that decrease vitality but i think that the things that are really really promising that actually probably do extend lifespan do increase vitality Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I really like think that you're like, if something does decrease your vitality, it's a good sign not to take it. So, uh, you can look at some of the most successful, uh, anti-aging interventions that are out there. Some of them, uh, one of them includes VEGF, which is like a recent, uh, recent genetic study done where they increase the expression of VEGF, which essentially increases blood vessel growth in the whole body. And BPC-157 works through a very similar mechanism. And the lifespan extension that they got from these mice was 50%. They lived 50% longer um, with this. Whereas, like with resveratrol, even the best claims from the people who are like probably lying about their data have like, you know, 10% life extension. So, this is like five times more life extension. And as anyone knows who's taken BPC 157, like all of your injuries heal, you feel more vitality, you feel better. So, like, I, I really don't think there's a disconnect there. I think that the only way that you're going to increase lifespan without increasing vitality is literally through emergency medicine. It's by like giving you a triple bypass, you know, so.
0: Interesting. Yeah. First of all, you know, I want to have a whole discussion on BPC 157. It's really, in my opinion, just like a miracle compound. And normally, not always. It does seem to be the case if something helps you out in like one aspect, it has a tendency to help you out in other aspects as well, just because of the interconnectedness. Now, obviously there's, there's plenty of uh, examples where that's not the case, but uh, going back, like one thing that, you know, I personally notice, right. When I'm on a high protein diet, I feel great. Right. I don't know if because those amino acids are going to like building blocks for my neurotransmitters, you know, if it's just the increased, I don't know, muscle protein synthesis, whatever it is, like, I feel really good, especially when I'm taking Essential amino acids, you know, branched chain amino acids from my diet, but uh, you know, in this case, it does seem that protein is is not correlated with longevity. What is what is the distinction there? Like, in mm-hmm. is like, do you think that a high protein diet? I don't know if you've ever experimented with one. Like, do you feel different? I, I personally do. Like, I feel great when I'm just you know spamming protein, but I'm also conscientious because I know that there are factors involved. You know, increased ammonia production, maybe amino acid imbalance. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on on the vitality inducing effects of protein?
1: Yeah. If I remember correctly, I think that a lot of the negative effects of like really high protein consumption in animals at least have been mitigated by making the animals exercise or allowing them to exercise. So I think that, you know, like exercise can increase your your protein requirement. Um, and also like a, a lot of the people who are, uh, you know, intolerant of branched chain amino acids where it like makes them pre-diabetic, they might actually just be thiamine deficient. Uh, no. Like vitamin vitamin B1 It it helps the breakdown of branched chain amino acids, and I think that if I there's there's a lot of things here. I think that um, branched chain amino acids require glycine as well to be broken down. So if you uh, are deficient in glycine, then that can also uh, cause a lot of the same issues. So as long as you're getting like sufficient vitamins and sufficient glycine, and you feel good on it, like I I see no reason to to do it like badly. I think that one uh, biomarker or do it differently right i think one biomarker of uh you know when it goes wrong that people can experience is tiredness like a lot of people will drink their protein shake and then feel immediately like really tired afterwards i think that that is is probably like when you should be holding back on protein and i think gotcha. that like intuitive eating is like really something solid here like i've noticed that sometimes I just like really, really, really crave protein. And I like want more and I I don't stop myself. I'm not like, Oh, I have to do, you know, this longevity thing and, and not eat like an extra five eggs and half pound of meat or something like that, you know? So, yeah. So like, I think that like, as long as your options are all pretty healthy, you know, like you have your fruit juices and your red meat and stuff like that. You just don't have a lot of like high poofo foods around. Then, um, I think that, yeah, I think that you should just go by like however you feel and, and just like intuitively eat what you want. And and I noticed that like around baseline, I end up, you know, eating around like a pound of beef a day, um, or, and plus like a little bit of milk. So it's like probably around 120 grams of protein and I weigh about 170 right now. So I think that, um, but then on the honey diet, there were times where I just had like insatiable protein cravings and I just like had to eat protein and, and, you know, and I was eating the same amount of protein, like total macros then. So, so I think that like, um, and I didn't stop myself. Like I I did, I did eat protein whenever I was like craving it like a a shit ton or, but like more protein at dinner. Like I I waited till dinner to do it.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think intuitive eating, it's what I've been doing forever. I do believe that in the beginning, like you said, you need to make sure that all the options are healthy. Because mm-hmm. if you are inducing, you know, these like extremely uh, you know, pleasurable combinations of fat and carbohydrates that they're having in Oreos and other, you know, like lab synthesized foods, mm-hmm. that's like you're destroying that system that's running off of intuition. No different than your like, you know, our information diet and our stimulus diet. But um, I notice it now, you know, I think spending time to build up that intuition using tools at your disposal, right, even if that is weighing out food, if that is using a macronutrient or micronutrient tracker, you get to the point where your body will tell you and like, I can feel when I need protein, like when I ha- or when I need carbohydrates. And when I have those carbohydrates, I can feel, you know, my glycogen stores loading up that difference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll go days with super low protein, high protein. That really, in, in my opinion, should be everyone's ideal because it makes things easy. And I like that you bring up this idea that like you should be able to eat like as much as you want because there are these natural mechanisms in place. It's just regenerating those. And um, <clears throat> now you were talking about making sure that you get enough glycine. You don't have a glycine deficiency because of an amino acid imbalance. That's something I've been pretty big on. You know, for the last year or so, is just making sure that I'm getting you know that full spectrum of amino acids from animal proteins, really trying to eat more nose to tail. Um, You mentioned that you eat a lot of beef. Do you incorporate, you know, connective tissue, stews, bone broth, marrow, or any other parts of the animal? Or are you primarily consuming uh, muscle meat? Now, obviously ground beef also has some of that connective tissue as well, but I'm just curious your take on nose to tail eating.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, I'm not like super, so I've tried nose to tail eating and You know, I honestly didn't notice too much of a difference, like, compared to just eating the muscle meat. Um, I've done, so, I mean, I I do gelatin, so I'll, I'll, like, try and make, like, a little soup broth with gelatin or something, or, or, um, you know, I've tried to make, like, gelatin, uh, like, jelly with, like, fruit juice and stuff like that, but it's just, like, not my favorite, so I, I end up with, like, soup broths but yeah, gel- gelatin is like, especially good because, um, it's deficient in isoleucine and very high in glycine. So if you have any of these issues, like gelatin is a, is a super food for you. Um, but yeah, like, so, so nose to tail, uh, I definitely think connective tissues are very good, you know, with the, uh, for hydroxyproline, for example, is like one thing that's implemented into collagen that you're not going to get anywhere else in a diet or in like a vegan diet, you only can really get it in connective tissue. And, uh, But then like the the main arguments for nose to tail eating aside from like having good collagen synthesis from eating gelatin or high glycine from gelatin is uh, the unique nutrients that are found in the organs or other parts of the animal or like um, or the high quantity of nutrients, like the nutrient density. Um, So when I started the honey diet, I think that one of the things that I wanted to experiment with was a low nutrient density diet as well people think that honey is natural and all like very nutrient dense and very good because of that but then if you plug it into chronometer or you just like look at any database that's measured the actual amount of nutrients in honey it's it's very low in nutrients like it's actually very (laughs) nutrient deficient if anything so i wanted to see if like i actually like needed a really nutrient dense diet to process that much energy and it didn't seem like i really needed to um but uh and when I've done like the, you know, I've eaten like two pounds of liver in a day, and I just felt like better and felt good. But I, but I never like, um, but I didn't like feel very very different on just like a baseline kind of level than than I do now. So, like, it's just like hard for me to say from personal experience. And and I've definitely seen some people like there's there's the whole movement of like the toxic bio theory or like vitamin A poisoning and stuff like that. Um. So, which which like may have a little bit of truth to it. Like, I don't think vitamin A is bad for you, but, um, it seems like vitamin A in excess can inhibit thyroid function if you're already kind of hyperthyroid or hypothyroid. So, so like, I think that the, um, you know, vitamin A should be pro- probably proportional to your health state and like liver may not be the best choice for somebody who's just like, you know, already hypothyroid and struggling with a lot of health issues. Like, and, and, Again, I think just like going by feeling, like you'll probably know if you feel bad if you eat some liver. Um, And then you probably will avoid it even more. It doesn't taste like super great to start with. So (laughs) it's not going to be hard for you to avoid if you find out it finds, you know, is bad for you.
0: Yeah. From an intuitive eating standpoint, I've never craved liver. And this is something (laughs) interesting I wanted to discuss with you about this new kind of vitamin A. Like the, the anti-vitamin A movement, and mm. I, I do believe there is some merit to it, but I don't believe it's the full picture. And I was talking to my friend, who's really big on kind of you know, the the biliary system, really you know, focusing on bile production and flow as as a primary health meter. Um, you know, I took Accutane, which is pretty much just like a, you know a toxic yeah, dose do. of bioavailable let's vitamin see. A. So my my bile flow is shot, and my liver function is is pretty subpar. For that reason, I really don't eat liver because I don't trust my, you know, I don't want to overburden my liver with, with vitamin A excessively. I don't, I just don't think it can process it now. Um, you know, I've been utilizing some compounds that have really helped with that. And one of the interesting things that I've noticed is, is better fat, uh, better, you know, better fat digestion, uh, among mm-hmm. other things. But, um, I feel that about vitamin A two liver, two pounds of liver is, is absolutely <laughs> absurd. Um, yeah. that's like, that's crazy. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I don't feel noticeably better when I take vitamin A. The only thing that I notice is I get skin issues when I, when I consume a lot of liver, when I consume a lot of liver and there could be other factors there as well, right? Like, you know, the liver could be contaminated with, uh, you know, something, uh, I know that the liver processes toxins, but I do believe that there are certain cells in the liver that have the capability to store them, you know, depending on how overburdened it is. Um, but okay. Interesting. Uh, going back to vitamin b1 um and honey not being very nutritionally uh mm. <laughs> nutritionally um you know that's- sufficient why does honey get such a you know why is it put on such a pedestal uh, you know raw honey in particular are there certain growth factors involved aside from the typical micronutrients that make it beneficial or do you think that it really just is you know syrupy sugar
1: i yeah i think it's a naturalistic fallacy for sure i think that it's the sugar that's doing all the actions so like you know, there's, there's all these extracts of honey and, you know, you can isolate these compounds in honey and give it to a mouse in like really, really high doses and try and enhance bioavailability by like inhibiting their liver function or just something crazy. And then you see effects, but like, but I think that, you know, in the actual like quantities of honey that people are consuming, the actual bioactive compounds like so-called are pretty low doses or may not like move the needle very far. And Um, there was stuff like, oh, look, honey increases testosterone by X amount. And then there's a study from the 1980s where they gave Coca-Cola to mice and then it increased testosterone by the same (laughs) amount. So, so like, I, I really, you know, I put it, I used the honey in the honey diet just as like, um, it's hard to validate like the processing methods behind, uh, processed foods, right? Mm. Like, you know, who knows if seed oils are actually bad because of PUFAs or because of the hexane that they need to use that are like remains and trace amounts in the, in the seed oils. Um, like the, there's just, it's hard to deconvolute variables when there's like a lot of just unknown processing methods within it, but honey is, you know, at least you can get something that is validated to be organic. So like not a ton of pesticides around it and is raw. So they're not like cooking it. So um, the reason why I chose it is is that it seems to be just like the most, like, you know, unprocessed sugar source that doesn't have a ton of nutrients in it. And then you look at stuff like maple syrup and molasses, which are arguably another couple things that are similar to that, where they kind of just like boil down sap or you know, even coconut aminos. And, uh, and those as well, like they have the browning of it, which it stems from this thing called the Maillard reaction, which is a glycation reaction. And, um, these can lead to kind of what people call advanced glycation end products, uh, in your, in your body that like may not be good for aging. I don't find any issues when I eat maple syrup or things like that. But, but again, like in such high quantities, I was just like, there's more unknowns, like cooking something even is kind of like an unknown about like the effect of it. So I, I could have done like a maple syrup diet or a sugar diet, and I could have had a bad health outcome, but just because of some processing method rather than the sugar. Um,
0: yeah, so. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I completely believe in the naturalistic fallacy. I think that as a like a a, a framework, it's it's not very mm-hmm. effective. But you know, using the heuristic of the more process something is, the more variables that can be involved, the more margin for error there is. I, I think that you know is is something good that can be utilized. Now, you mentioned AGES. AGES are are, are a pretty big point of contention. You know, that's why like some people are like you know don't char your steak. <laughs> you know, don't sear. Mm-hmm your your uh your duck um do you think that ages are, are overblown you know i know you mentioned that you don't personally notice anything from them but looking at it from more of a of like a, a academic standpoint a uh, clinical standpoint do you think that they're not as big an issue as they're made out to be
1: mm, i think that they're so i mean one really um like yeah I, I, one really like pertinent example of of something that's similar to like AGES that everyone experiences is farsightedness. Like your lens stiffens over time, and then it can't be like flexible because of essentially like the same process. And um, and then you you become farsighted uh, as as you get older. So like it does affect your biology, and and you can see that because you're gonna have to buy reading glasses when you're like sixty. <laughs> um, but I, I think that like it's something that's gonna kill you once you've already extended your life past like you know cancer and cardiovascular disease and things like that, you know, it's going to kill you once you're like 120, versus like killing you immediately, unless unless you're doing something that's like, super pro AGE all the time. Like, I I think that like, it may be the difference between you living to like 125 and 120 with life extension, if you've like, if you avoid it super strong, like in your stakes, like you never char your steak, but maybe it's probably not going to move like the, the needle once you're, you know, dying of cancer instead or something. Yeah. It kind of just like stiffens your stiffens your system a little bit. It doesn't do too much other things. It, it seems.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I'd rather uh, enjoy a nice charred steak every few weeks, uh, if that means you know me being a little bit less of a centenarian. Speaking of which, do you think that being a centenarian, you know, with your current approach, is something that you're you're anticipating? You know, do you think that is something that's highly achievable?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think so. I think that the. You know, what we really need is things, so like the VEGF lifespan study, where they did a 50% extension of mouse lifespan. I think that um, BPC-157 could replicate that, and uh, we just need the science to be done. Like, we need mice to be given BPC-157 once they're old and see how long they live after that. Yeah. And and then I think uh, the next step after that is it needs to be put into dogs. So there's, there was a, uh, I went to a longevity conference in Honduras actually recently. And, uh, and I saw, I saw the, um, there was a, there was a guy who gave a presentation and he was talking about like the predictive power of um, your model versus like how many compounds you need to screen to find something that works. It's a little convoluted, but um, essentially if you think about like the history of something like penicillin or uh, like the guy found it by just having you know, his, a culture dish. And then, and then all of this stuff started dying in like a sphere or like a circle, right? And he's like, oh, what's this thing that's killing all of my, all my culture here? And he isolated penicillin. And then after that, from like the, you know, you know, I think it was like 1920s when that happened, but I might be wrong. And until, uh, you know, 19, 1980s, they they essentially just took that approach where they were screening soil samples to find antibiotics. And that's when all the antibiotics came out. And now what we're doing is we're just like throwing billions and billions of antibiotics like onto cells and in like these like labs and we haven't been able to get a single antibiotic out of that method so essentially uh the idea is like even though you can screen these like billions and billions of different compounds that you never were able to before it's just so divorced from the system of biology and like that it's probably never going to work in an animal or or humans um so that shows, so that shows like, you know, before with like a better model where stuff was already happening in biology, it worked with like at least one biology. They were only able to look at like a few thousand compounds and find something that works, but now they have to look at trillions and can't get a single one. So then we need these things to be put into better models for it to actually be something that works in humans. So my studies probably won't translate to humans, but dog studies, I think will translate to humans. So if there's somebody who's out there and you want to see if BPC-157 is something that is going to extend your life, what you really should do is once your dog is old and probably on its way out, start giving it some BPC-157 and see if it lives like a lot longer and becomes more, you know, has more vitality. Uh, and so then you can start like, taking it yourself. Yeah, i <laughs> start giving
0: this guy some BPC. Not even mine. He just comes in my house all the
1: time. Interesting. Uh, you know- yeah, he's like, excuse me
0: yeah he's gonna be my little lab rat what about pigs do you think pig studies are more uh, biologically accurate to humans than say dogs
1: um you know maybe i mean there's a whole like uh i think what is it called i I don't know the name of the theory but it's like kind of this hybrid theory of evolution where they think that like you know i think there's some people who think that pigs cross with monkeys or something crazy like that and (laughs) turn into humans but I, i don't know if it's like i just saw that in like some twitter posts but uh you know, like, I guess yeah. Whatever is closest to us genetically and in, in lifespan is probably good, but um, but yeah, I think dogs is it, it's easier because like at a point you have to make an ethical decision where it's like this is the probability of the uh, of the drug working, and then you want your dog to live longer and feel better. So then, so then you have to be like, okay, he only has a year left. So well, at this point, we should probably try this thing. And people just don't have pigs around like hanging out. So it's a more decentralized thing, right? Like okay. if enough people give their dogs BPC-157 and then you record the breed, then that gives you the data to say, hey, this is the average lifespan of the breed. This is the average lifespan of the breed once the owner gave them BPC-157. And then you can go and post. And then without having to spend any money for a trial, the you get the data on dogs, whether the drug works or not.
0: I love that crowdsourced decentralized model. I think, honestly, you know, that's really the future of of mm. studies. In my opinion, you know, in a perfect world, uh, it seems wonderful. Um, you know, speaking about BBC one five seven, I'm I'm a huge fan of it. I mean, just the wide variety of mechanisms and improvements that you notice on it are, are incredible. Mm. You know, for me, someone who was on SSRIs and still has some of you know that uh, desensitization mm. desensitization of some of my auto receptors you know, 5-HC1A and then some issues with 5-HC2C, like, I really find, like, a, a serotonergic balancing effect on it. And this is coming from someone who's utilized cipraptin and stuff like that. And then, obviously, you know, the, the dopamine, uh, like, homeostasis is really incredible. But, um, you know, the one thing that we see with BPC-157, the primary risk profile is, you know, potentially due to its angiogenic properties it is potential to stimulate you know or promote cancer growth in pre-existing uh you know ma- malignant cells do you think that is a risk do you think you know is that just them trying to point to something wrong with it or you know in my opinion i think anything that's going to promote cell proliferation and growth is going to do that relatively non-selectively
1: so i mean theoretically it sounds as a risk though I think BPC 157, so like for one, VEGF is the factor that everyone worries about when it comes to angiogenesis and cancer. If you look at the FDA-approved drugs that are targeting this angiogenic mechanism trying to prevent metastases, they are anti-VEGF drugs. And they seem to work, right? But the mouse lifespan study, so so uh in the context of mice in this model they use, I believe it was the C57 Black Six strain they die of cancer even at a higher rate than humans like they're very very cancer prone yet it extended life in these very cancer-prone mice by 50 percent uh with the most like raw mechanism that's like Vegf. that there are directed drugs against it for cancer and then bbc 157 is one level removed from that where it's like a natural peptide that's already in your body um it's not like some genetic thing that they're messing with and uh well i mean Vegf is too but um but it's one degree removed where uh, it may have differential effects depending on like the cell type. So so there was one cell study where they took a melanoma cell line and they saw that it it inhibited VEGF in this specific cell line, which is really interesting. So like in cancer, it may have anti-VEGF, anti-angiogenic effects, but in the rest of your body, it seems to have these pro-angiogenic effects. Um, Interesting. And, you know, it doesn't increase circulating VEGF, so it doesn't increase like the factor that these cancer drugs block, but it increases the sensitivity of cells to VEGF. It increased the VEGF receptor in the certain like blood vessel cells and it increased like fibroblast activity. So like it, it has like, it's really like one step removed from this, from that mechanism, uh, even though the endpoint is more blood vessels. Like, it, so like, I don't know if it's generalizable to say that it does, Um worsen it oh oh, and one more thing too the the only other thing that angiogenesis really seems to worsen is uh eye disease so like macular degeneration for example um once you once you have like so much blue light in your eyes that like everything is degraded uh and and then like you know which is actually through a vitamin a mechanism which is kind of surprising um the uh you know you're you start to have like this vision uh like loss in the middle of your eye once the uh blood vessels come in and grow and start to have like, you know, these, these like lesions everywhere um like filled with blood and and like everything. It kind of looks pretty gross if you if you look at the pictures. So um people have looked at stuff like that with BPC 157 as well. They've looked at something similar like retinal um ischemia where uh VEGF, if you apply VEGF, it worsens it and it worsens like this ischemic reperfusion injury and it causes a bunch of lesions. BPC one fifty seven actually protected against um the retinal uh ischemia like the isch- ischemia ischemic reperfusion injury which vegef does not so that's to say like at least in everything that they've tried where blood vessels are deleterious BPC 157 seems to be protective um, that's
0: very very interesting um i'm gonna take a quick bathroom break i will be right back
1: <laughs> yeah no problem
0: and we're back awesome Uh, you know you you mentioned something there which which uh perked my ears up you know uh is there any semantic correlation between your retina and then retinol you know correlating to vitamin a or is that completely coincidental
1: i mean i think it is i mean yeah I, i don't know about the actual etymology of that but i think that i think it is because the photoreceptor like needs vitamin a uh or I believe it's all transretinol is the actual form of it um, to accept light and like propagate it. So yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. Interesting.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, another discussion, uh, a post that you made, which was really, really interesting to me, um, you know, as a dopamine fiend, as they say, is talking about, you know, Depronil and PPAP and, mm-hmm. and kind of just the dopaminergic system in general, right? Like this idea that, you know, everyone thinks dopamine is good, but chronically high dopamine, you know, that's, that's schizophrenia. And you did a really good job at elaborating, you know, the nuance behind dopamine and, you know, uh, the dopamine waves. Could you kind of just go into that and and explain how, you know, chronically high dopamine may correlate to, uh, you know, um, like psychosis, potentially, uh, and and how that correlates with Adderall as well as, you know, kind of increasing that tide?
1: Yeah, so I think it's uh, from discrimination learning. So essentially, there's an idea where um, you can give uh, two different stimuli in um, mice and they have to discriminate between them and uh, so like generally what they'll do is is uh, you know they'll give mice say something like THC and then they'll give mice another thing which is like you know there's an endocannabinoid called anandamide and um, they are like okay hey do these things have different effects on the mouse so they'll make them, do one action if it's the same and another action if it's different right and if they don't act differently then they see they say like perceptually these things are the same right so this is like the really baseline study and for in the case of like thc and this endogenous thing in your head called anandamide then the they cannot discriminate between the two and uh you know this anandamide is also upregulated in schizophrenia, which is why I'm kind of thinking about it, right? Like THC kind of can put you into this maybe state, uh, where, uh, you know, like similar to, to a schizophrenic brain state, but that's just like an aside. But the real thing here is like, there are these experiments where you can have, um, you know, you can discriminate between two different things. One thing that's unique about humans is that we have to discriminate between truth and falsehood. So, um, So then you can kind of say, hey, this is also discrimination learning. Like you can, you learn to discriminate uh, between like this thing is true, this thing is false. And the mechanism of discrimination learning in all of these things, whether you're discriminating between two drugs or you're discriminating between truth and falsehood, it works through dopamine. So if you have kind of like this belief about like something is, is true and then it turns out to be true, you get a dopamine spike. And then you have a belief that something is something, so either it's something different or something false, you get a dopamine dip. So the actual phasic nature of dopamine is kind of essential for even discerning between two different objects, or in the case of humans, discerning between truth and falsehood. So when there is a schizophrenic who cannot have dopamine dips, so they have just chronically high dopamine, they have high uh endogenous cannabinoids in their head they have like all these like different neurochemical changes but in particular high dopamine um they look at something and you know maybe your intrusive thought is this helicopter is following me and and then uh you know in a normal person you would have a dopamine dip you could be like oh that's a ridiculous thought it's not following me but a schizophrenic would just immediately have that thought be confirmed because their dopamine is high um so that's how something like Adderall or methamphetamine can induce schizophrenic-like states, where you look at something and then you have this intrusive thought, or you have this immediate like presumption, and then that gets confirmed instead of like the actual uh, truth that you can evaluate from this kind of uh, prefrontal cortex-like reasoning side. Like your your bottom-up thoughts uh, win, and uh, this is also something that THC does. Like it makes you rely more on your bottom-up thoughts rather than like your thinking, your prefrontal cortex. So, uh, so uh, yeah, that's that's like one of the things that uh Adderall can kind of inhibit, uh, where, yeah, any of your thoughts get immediately confirmed, and and this really blends into your your reality as well. If you look at something and you think it has like eyes for half a second, right? It's like sometimes you do. You look at a tree and it look, looks like a face. Well, instead of it just looking like a face, it's going to become a face because you believe it's a face. Like it really, your belief really, really controls the reality as it, as it seems from these like qualitative experiences of people in psychosis. Um, but there's, there's definitely ways around that. Like you want your dopamine to be able to release strongly when you want it to and, and dip when you also, you know, want it to, uh, which something like Adderall inhibits. And I think that like discrimination learning, it uh, blends into a lot of other types of learning or a lot of things that you need to, you know, learn in school. And, uh, Adderall just like having chronically high dopamine, like may not be the best, uh, if you're trying to discriminate between like the right answer and the wrong answer by intuition, like you may just immediately gravitate and guess on the right answer or like the wrong answer or something. Cause it feels, feels more right. So I, I think that's like one reason why people think that Adderall feels like a nootropic, right? Like, I don't think that it actually improves, uh, IQ or uh, performance very well on, uh, you know, examinations, but, it makes you feel like you're getting the right answer because (laughs) because like that just like the biochemistry behind it like you just feel like that's right
0: yeah and that that dopamine neurotoxicity too very euphoric so Mm -hmm. say you were to you know drug up a bunch of kids with amphetamine and then put them in a room would it make it easier for them to kind of be indoctrinable or impressionable
1: I think it's, I think it's dependent on like self-assuredness, right? Because then I think that if they, uh, if they think that their own thoughts are right and like as their immediate response, like they're probably biased towards that. I think it just like increases confirmation bias and like increases the weight towards the first thought more. Right. So like if they have a, a, you know, if they have a first thought and they see another thing down the line that like slightly confirms it, like that confirmation of that first thought is going to be much stronger. So their thoughts are going to be less flexible. So if, they're, if they are impressionable to start with, it will help with doctrination, I think. But if they are self-assured to start with, then, then I don't think it will. So I think it's up to the parents at that point, right? Like, how did you raise them? Are they going to yeah. think about, like, think for themselves or not? I think it just enhances, like, whatever state they were already in. Very in interesting.
0: Case. Yeah, yeah. I would, um, that's super interesting. And, and, you know, something you mentioned in that post as well is that The one real use case for uh, amphetamines, Adderall in particular, you know, the the mixed amphetamine salts is if you are trying to essentially gaslight yourself into doing and enjoying something that you don't like. I Mm. I was prescribed Adderall when I was a kid, never used it, uh, just didn't need to, probably good that I didn't. Um, But, um, you know, I I utilized it quite a bit when I was in my very early 20s um, and, you know, in tech. Because I hated it, right? But by utilizing low doses, using it with a choline source, and then utilizing, you know, um, anti-tolerance agents like uh, agmatine sulfate and then vitamin C after to kind of just mm-hmm. enhance that, that metabolism out of my system, I essentially was able to gaslight myself into liking computer science, which is something mm-hmm. that I fundamentally despise, you know, just completely removing all variables. Because like, I knew if I were to take that Adderall and I were to go play video games, I would like video games that much more. But if I were to remove those variables and like answer emails and, you know, develop things on Figma and and learn Linux, um, I ended up liking that. But, um, you know, it's one of those compounds where the risk is so high, the reward is maybe acutely uh, beneficial, but long term, you're really damaging that same system that you allegedly have a deficiency in in the first place, you know, being that frontal lobe. Um, And and speaking of kind of dopaminergic agents, um, you, you seem to be a really big proponent of certain Alzheimer's medications, even in the use of you know cognitively adequate individuals. Personally, I find a lot of interest in dinepazil. You know, i found incredible use uh, use cases with ad or excuse me, with nicotine and dinepazil, from what mm. I can tell, you know, just do it it's uh, you know or acetylcholine mm. um, you know function just seems like a, a higher, more potentiating dose of, of nicotine. What is it about these Alzheimer's medications like l uh amantadine, and then bromocryptine that you find so interesting and, and potentially utilizable by the, uh, you know, common population?
1: Yeah, so I think that um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. The the uh, one of the interesting things is that. You look at the drug age database again, like the longevity, kind of all the anti-aging interventions that have been done. And there are only a couple drugs that have been robustly replicated. So all of the ones that extend life, like 40% or whatever, have only really been done once. There's ones that have been done like two times maybe. And there's ones that have been done like by independent groups, three plus times in mammals. And the only two that have been done three plus times in independent groups in mammals have been rapamycin, so the mTOR inhibitor, and deprinil, and also metformin. And of those three, metformin doesn't extend lifespan, rapamycin does extend lifespan, and L-deprinil also does extend lifespan. And L-deprinil is the only drug to extend lifespan in dogs, like definitively. So that's like probably the only thing that I think that like is ready as like a human just to be like yeah for sure this is gonna extend my life and just uh taking it in adulthood i think that the i think that the um guy who invented it joseph noel uh he said that like you know and it was coined the first longevity drug and he recognized it as a longevity drug i think that he said to take it in adulthood like not when you're young and have everything but but the mechanism of it i think like it seems like anything that is pro-dopamine which uh Depernil is it inhibits dopamine breakdown and increases some dopamine uh transmission i think anything that's pro-dopamine like bromocryptine or lisuride or, or all these other things they seem to also protect dopamine neurons uh just you know with, from dying and if, if you look at like a dopamine neuron in a brain they they have like these super super long tendrils everywhere like they they expand your entire brain just like super huge surface area uh they like connect everywhere it's ridiculous but they're the most fragile ones, and right. they're some of the first ones to go once you have neuro, neurodegeneration um, with the prevalence of Parkinson's, like you can see that. And they're, they're uh, the most sensitive to mitochondrial toxins, like MPPA+. There, there was a grad student once who was trying to synthesize like a, an opioid and just like take it himself for, for fun, right, as, as like organic chemistry grad students would do. And he did it and he had an impurity in his purification. And then he created a dopaminergic neurotoxin and induced Parkinson's in himself and like died a year later. So, um, but like the uh, BPC-157 and Depernil both can protect against the toxicity of that specific agent that that grad student eventually, you know, succumb to, or, you know, or he succumbed to the kind of downstream effects. But, but uh, protecting dopamine neurons from mitochondrial toxins specifically is is like the primary thing you really need to do if you want to not have neuro- neurodegeneration, is what it seems. Um, and I think that those yeah those are the best options.
0: Interesting. And you know you mentioned uh, you know don't want to paraphrase here, but anything that's like pro dopaminergic seems to be n- neuroprotective. Um, you know I think one of the primary arguments against Adderall uh, is the like over over dopaminergic activity that may potentially downregulate or even destroy those. Dopaminergic neurons are at the very least their receptors. Like, Mm. where is that differentiation there where, you know, some of these dopaminergic drugs are good? You know, something that's a little bit overly dopaminergic like Adderall is bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought too deeply into this, but I think that the uh, just like on on first thoughts, like the the ones that seem to be toxic are the dopamine releasing agents. So they're like taking dopamine out of dopamine neurons and sending it everywhere. But then uh, the ones that seem to be protective are the ones that are like direct dopamine agonists so like glyceride or um, or they stop the breakdown of dopamine. so they increase like the amount that just like hangs out of that's already been released. so like depranil is a monoamine oxidase B inhibitor. So I, I think that um, it, it may literally just be like the uh, you know your increase if you're I don't know how uh, I don't know the actual extracellular concentrations of it, but like it, it might just be that like the if you're demanding more out of your dopamine neurons, that may not be good, but if you're taking the job away, like if you're if you're alleviating some of the some of the need from the dopamine neurons by like giving synthetic agents that that seems to like boost their function a little bit without like demanding more dopamine to be synthesized, like maybe that's a good approach.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a good representation. Uh, another, you know, Alzheimer's medication on this list is luceride, which is mm-hmm. pretty much like a, a, a non psychedelic form of lsd which is a vast oversimplification you know what is the mechanism of interest there um and you know i think lsd in general i see a lot of people that are very anti-serotonergic like in the anti-serotonergic crowd seem to champion lsd yet some of the mechanisms you know from what i've heard and i I really can't break down these mechanisms but seem to be pro-serotonergic and that that serotonin activity is what makes these compounds have that euphoric psychedelic effect to begin with um so, you know, what is the deal with lyseride? And then, you know, what are your thoughts on LSD? Like, is it pro proserotonergic, somewhere in the middle?
1: Yeah, that's a super good question. Uh, <laughs> and I think that, like, it's relatively unanswered. So you, there's like, you can look at the profile of all of these things that hit 5-HT2A, which is the purported uh, psychedelic receptor. And some of them produce psychedelic effects. Some of them don't. Some of them are labeled as agonists. Some of them are labeled as antagonists, partial agonists, inverse agonists. Like there's so many different like labels to them, yet they all do completely different effects like at the same receptor. So like, and then again, it goes back to the thing where like in the lab I try and replicate a paper and then like 90% of it just like doesn't work as written (laughs) until you, and then even if you like find out, like reach out to the author and like ask for the specific method and then get it, maybe only 50% at that point replicate. So like whenever there's like somebody claiming, Hey, this thing is like an agonist at this receptor, it's just like such a hard thing to evaluate. Like w- if it's actually like pro the, you know, receptor, anti-receptor, or, like if, if this claim is even real, if it even binds, I, I, I really searched in the literature to find the, um, the actual affinity of serotonin to the 5 HT 2 a receptor. And I could not find it. Like, I don't think it exists. So nobody knows like how tightly serotonin even binds to this receptor. From from what I understand, um, it just seems like it's it's like some weird co-localization studies, and uh, and there's also like the arguments where like these serotonin receptors, which we call serotonin receptors, may not actually be serotonin receptors. So there were recent studies where they looked at the endogenous biosynthesis of DMT in the mammalian brain. And they found that DMT was present at around the same concentration as serotonin in like this basal state. And when they induced a heart attack in the mouse, it, it increased. Um, so, so like if DMT binds this receptor so tightly, like 5-H2A and serotonin, we don't even know if it binds very tightly to the receptor at all. Like, why are we not calling it a DMT receptor? Like, Why are we calling it a serotonin receptor? so i think it's like a very complicated system and i think that people like ray pete said that serotonin also lsd was anti-serotonin just because of these um the effects that it had like downstream like he was looking at it from more of like a systems perspective as in kind of serotonin if you increase it increases aggression and is kind of a stress mediator whereas if you um you know give someone lsd they don't become aggressive i mean depending on the person unless they're like some psycho Uh, but uh (laughs) So, so it's really hard to um, reason from like this like bottom up, up up approach. I think like a systems kind of perspective is better, but uh, but yeah, like it's it, that's just something I really like can't answer because I, I think the literature is just such like a war zone. I
0: can imagine. Yeah, the etymology of a lot of these things is just so misleading and misconstruing. I mean, the one for me is like why are adrenaline and norepinephrine you know why why are they have for the same thing? Yeah. Someone was mentioning it's like. There was an argument between two guys, like one of them was having an affair with their wife. So they're like, we're going to name them both of these because we both want to take credit. But I guess that's just the the nuance and, I guess, inadequacy of, of the traditional scientific system, which is interesting. I mean, I, I like that you're really at the forefront of this and uh, can mm-hmm. see that. But um, moving on, low-dose naltrexone. Low-dose naltrexone mm-hmm. is a really interesting compound to in me. We've been seeing it utilized in a lot of these kind of stealth pathogen um, ailments, you know, autoimmune responses and stuff. And I was looking at the mechanisms, a lot of it seems to just have like impact on opioid growth factor and the OGF receptors. Um, I read something that you posted about it having like an inhibitory endo uh, response on like your, your endo- endotoxin response. Um, mm-hmm. But personally, you know, anecdotal experience with uh, my uh, like, low dose naltrexone use case, I used to always wake up, I still wake up just like very inflamed and foggy and, you know, could be a a numerous, uh, like a a large number of reasons, right. Maybe mold exposure. You know, I, I, ever since I, you know, had like SSRIs really messed me up. So that was probably a factor as well. Low dose naltrexone taking it before bed, which when a lot of people it seems to cause sleep issues for me, I slept great. I was the first morning I woke up and I was just ready to go. Like I looked in the mirror, I had no sinus inflammation or anything, Uh, Really incredible compound. You seem to have used it for migraines among other things.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Why do you think LDN has so much merit? Why do you think it's not being utilized at a larger scale?
1: Oh, I mean, I think that it's a patent issue, really, at this point. Like the the you know, there's so many indications that it could treat, but it's just like not patentable. It's like just around forever. It's basically a generic by this point. Um, I mean, there's Ageless Rx who are running clinical trials on it, and they're also the people who can give you Ageless Rx. Ageless RX. Yeah. And they're running some clinical trials on it for different indications, I believe. Um, maybe just like survey based observational kind of things uh, for people who are already got prescriptions through them. But, uh, you know, so th- there is going to be some data coming off of it. But yeah, I-, I think that there's just like not huge monetary incentive to figure that stuff out. Um, but again, it's like not a huge issue, because it's something that people can just take and experiment with. And, uh, and I think that it does, you know, have these anti endotoxin effects, like it, it blocks the cellular receptor for endotoxin uh and it's one of the only things that does that in the brain as well there are a lot of things that do this like anti-inflammatory things that block TLR4 but they just don't seem to hang out in the brain very much um and the only other thing that does seem to do something similar is like maybe omega-3s but i don't think that you want to be taking like mega doses of omega-3s to uh to <laughs> treat these endotoxin issues because then you're just if you have like any pre existing oxidative stress, which you presumably do because you have inflammatory responses everywhere, you're just going to cause like a huge oxidation of all of these these uh highly oxidizable fats.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that one's super interesting to me. It sounds like a common issue, especially in the pharmaceutical and, and mainstream treatment space. If it's not patentable, there's really not a lot of interest. There's gonna be no funding going towards Research and no, like, practical use cases by primary care providers. I mean, we're mm-hmm. seeing the same thing with peptides right now. You know, they're really trying to stifle the compounding pharmacy's capability to produce these safely and reasonably, mm-hmm. and just wait until they can put them into a patentable distribution model like Ozempic, Wagovi, and whatnot. Um, you know, one more thing to wrap up, uh, this idea that energy gives structure is really big, especially in, you know, the bioenergetic space, pro-metabolic, pro-metabolic space, whatever you want to call it. The example that you put out on Twitter of the nails with iron filings in light of a magnet and without a magnet, like that was the one that really gave me that understanding of, of how energy gives structure. Could you kind of go into that argument and that mental model uh, and you know maybe explain why that's not adopted or adapted you know, by mainstream science and why that's not like a, a, a leading explanation of our biological function?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a pretty big rabbit hole. Um, Gilbert Ling is the person who had that idea, right? So he had uh, this association induction hypothesis. Um, essentially, the, the general model is that uh, you have proteins in your cell, and these proteins are like this, the general smallest form of life uh, with their surrounding environment. And then you have the other things you have in your cell are, are water and you have ions and hormones and small molecules and the uh you know water on the interface of these proteins get kind of polarized and oriented kind of like you know the the um you know and then and then there's like ions too that like bind to the protein and then these these all kind of get oriented in like a line by just like these electric interactions with the proteins um kind of like the nails in the and the uh like little iron filings and, and this was this was a picture that was from the book um that Gilbert Ling wrote uh, around it. So there's a lot of literature you can dig into that. But the um, the implication of that is that uh, proteins can have these like different states that are dependent on water and hormones and things around it. So ATP, everybody thinks that the thing that ATP does is it holds like energy inside of it and it has like this high energy bond, right? And then they think that the action of life is like you cleave the bond and you release energy and you do work. So what Gilbert Ling found is that... Um, Proteins can bind ATP, and then uh, there's an energy associated with like the binding of it, absorption energy. And he found that the absorption energy of ATP was higher than the energy in the so-called high-energy phosphate bond. So just the action of stuff like binding and releasing can release more energy than the so-called cleavage of, of uh, ATP, And the action that happens like whenever the ATP or things like this bind to proteins is that water is structured around it. So he envisioned these two different states. He envisioned a relaxed state where ATP or high energy kind of things were bound to proteins. And then, uh, he envisioned a state where it was called the active state where the ATP was released and the protein can contract and, and structure less water. And, um, you do see this in cells. So like if I take a muscle cell, for example, and I stimulate it with electricity, you can measure the uh, volume of the cell, right? Like in, in like a little chamber of water and the water in the state, the relaxed state, right? Where the proteins are all like nice and extended and the, uh, the water is like polarized and oriented on the surface of the proteins. That's more of like an ice-like structure. So I believe it's a, about 4% bigger uh, than normal, like bulk phase water, right? The water that when it's structured in this format. Uh, so you, you see, uh, you know, and then you expect if the water is freed off of these proteins and is no longer ice-like, it's no longer slightly higher volume than the bulk phase, like liquid water, that the volume would contract uh, and get smaller total whenever the water is freed. So then if you stimulate a muscle cell in like a little chamber or like a little frog muscle, the actual total volume in the chamber like decreases, like the the water in the, in the chamber, like the size of it decreases because the water is now freed from the proteins like which kind of contracted and the water in the cell is now much more liquid and less structured. So then you look at things like cancer cells or senescent cells and the water in these cells are different, right? Like senescent cells have more free water and they're kind of like more swollen up and more bulk phase water than like a normal cell. So like the, the whole like energetic state of the water completely changes depending on like the pathology of your cell, which is, which is a pretty ridiculous insight, but it's like, why, why we not looked at this? Like why, if you uh, look at the efforts in drug discovery, everything is just centered around like membrane receptors and like drugs binding to proteins. Nobody is even thinking about water. Um, the most cutting edge people are like Michael Levin who are thinking about like bioelectricity, but they're still like not even thinking about water. They're still just putting like these these uh, channels into the membranes of cells and expecting that to like change everything. So the, the thing that that comes back to is, is like Gilbert Ling. Gilbert Ling's idea. So essentially he had, I, I think it was, um, I, I don't know the exact decade that this was, but he was in graduate school and he was tasked with giving a seminar on the sodium pump so the the general idea around the cell back then was that there was a membrane and there were pumps in it and the pumps pumped ions into the cell and then that created an electric potential so like neurons what they do is um you know they'll they'll you know let like you know expel potassium and include sodium to get back to this like baseline Uh, Sorry, to uh, excite, right? But then whenever they're resting, they pump potassium in purportedly and they exclude sodium to just uh, change their electrical state. So that's like the the general idea of like the cell membrane and the membrane functions to uh, regulate the cell's electrical state is the whole paradigm. But Gilbert Ling went in and he was like, he was tasked with giving this talk on this whole theory and he read all into it. And he came to the seminar and he was like, yeah, this, there's nothing here, guys. I'm sorry. I can't talk about this. Like the sodium pump is fake. I don't believe in it. All of these data like don't make sense. And then he gave the seminar and then all of his professors were mad and his like PI came up to him. His, his, uh, the leader of his lab really came up to him and was like, Gilbert, like, do not touch the sodium pump. This is a sacred cow is what he said. (laughs) So, so he was like, well, fuck you. And then he just spent the rest of his long life on, you know, dismantling the sodium pump and that idea. So, so this ties back into the, the, his idea of like, you know, the, the cell accumulates potassium by the proteins binding to it, not by like there needing to be a membrane and everything being pumped in. But the, the problem is he had all these like revolutionary ideas, which are which I'm finding now like with my PhD to become true. Like this is essentially what I'm studying. Uh, so the problem is all of his opponents got Nobel Prizes. The people who were like pro the sodium potassium pump like all of, there were like three Nobel prizes of his opponents, like chemiosmotic hypothesis, like the sodium potassium pump, like all this stuff. So the scientific community just like believed so much in like the sodium pump being required to regulate the cellular physiology that uh, Gilbert Ling was just viewed as a quacker, as like a, you know, pseudoscientific and like nobody believes in his work. Um, so, and, and what's funny is that uh, he essentially created the microelectrode that his opponents used in their studies to gain their Nobel prizes. So he like literally created the technology that allowed his opponents to do their work and still just got brushed to the sideline. It was, I believe it was called the, uh, Gerard Ling, uh, uh, microelectrode. So, uh, anyway, Fast forward quite a while, right? the all of his opponents, he has like these great ideas that like water is super important in the cell for like structure and energy and and the cellular physiology is regulated by like the state of proteins in water versus these pumps in the in the membrane. and uh you know no one believes him and then now it's like you know hundred years later, essentially he lived like a hundred years. and um so he like dust kind of settles like Nobel prizes are, are decades ago now. And people are starting to explore like the role of water again. They're like, okay, nothing's working. Like we can't actually like, we, everything has been drugged. Like we don't know, you know, what to work with. So then this guy, uh, Gerald Pollock, comes along and then he, he like looks at uh, the structure of water again. And he's like, oh, look, there's this exclusion zone phenomenon. He, he wrote the fourth phase of water. Easy, he calls it easy water where there's like a surface, a hydrophilic, and then these micro, mi- micro spheres of plastic are kind of excluded and sent away which is a real phenomenon. However, I think that he killed the field a second time. So originally, like, science killed Gilbert Lang because they were like, hey, your opponents are right. But now there's this guy, uh, Gerald Pollack, who's I'm sure is a great guy, but I think he killed the field a second time because um, he essentially posited that there was a structure of water called H3O2, uh, which is like this he- hexagonal water. And I really don't think there's any evidence for it. Right. Like there, there are these like standard methods that you do to determine like structures of things like X-ray crystallography or neutron radiography are a couple examples. And these things just haven't been done or conflict with the idea of the H3O2 structure of water. So, um, and then, you know, like, and then if you simulate this water in computer simulations that are fairly accurate, the water like literally explodes. Like it's not a, a state that's like energetically favorable in really any conditions. So, so the only person to come back and like, look at water and be like, Hey, maybe, maybe the, there's something to this like structured water idea inside of the cell. Like maybe water is, is like in a different kind of state in the cell. Uh, he like made this just idea where this like fake, I think like water structure exists and then never proved it out. And the only things that like this poly guy, you know, who I'm sure still is a great guy uh, is publishing is like the effect of Wi-Fi energy on you know, easy water. So it's like, why are you publishing studies on, on like the effect of Wi-Fi on this thing that like, you know, you haven't even proved exists yet. Like, like, come on, man. So, um, so then if you like look, look up structured water on Wikipedia now, because like the general consensus is kind of aligned with this, that like, Hey, this thing like hasn't really been proven out. It, it looks like it's a pseudoscientific phenomenon. Like they say it's literally pseudoscience on the Wikipedia page of structured water despite like there being just decades and literally like a century of evidence around like water being structured. And, and, you know, I think the proof is in the pudding here. The, the creator of MRI, um, he credited Gilbert Ling and his ideas around structured water and proteins binding potassium for the creation of the MRI. He's like, Hey, I wouldn't even have looked at the things that I needed to look at Unless Gilbert Ling had these ideas around water, an MRI is kind of like based on that. Like he 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 had these ideas where uh, originally the MRI machine was trying to be patented to scan the body and look for cancer cells because the water was different in cancer cells than normal cells, and we still use it for that. We use it to look at cancer cells and see and like find find cancers and detect cancers. But like but like we just still are ignorant to the water because it's like so-called pseudoscience because like this this kind of while there is structured water, there's one specific structure of water in the modern paradigm is probably wrong. And now everyone hates it, like part two. Um, So so yeah, I I think in summary, like Gilbert Ling was right. And there's all this data coming out now that uh, shows that he was right, that like water is polarized and oriented around proteins, but it doesn't form an exotic structure. It's just very important for the energetic state of the cell. And uh, proteins have evolved to use that. So, like, there's a, there's this phenomenon where proteins, if they're concentrated enough, they form these like kind of little microspheres that are still made out of water, but are different of insolvent than the rest of everything. So it's like an oil droplet in water, but both phases are made out of water. So they can, and then uh, different molecules can go into or out of that at different uh, affinities. I guess so. Like you would call it partitioning where, uh, maybe you have proteins that, uh, evolved to have like a little tractor beam of water essentially, and like only have stuff like, you know, associated around it that they want. Right. So, so like, but that's really dependent on energy as Gilbert Ling showed. So just this organizational thing, um, water drives organization in the cell and the proteins can only organize water when they have energy, (laughs) So yeah, it's a really long-winded saying, uh, way of saying that energy is important. And uh, I'm actually like looking to spin up a biotech startup after I finish my PhD, targeting water rather than any of these other things, because I think that's like the most important thing that uh, there is, really.
0: Interesting, very interesting. Yeah, Gilbert Ling, he he comes up a lot in kind of these contemporary discussions. I've read a lot of ancillary discussions about his work, but I've never actually dug into any of the source material. I, I assume he has uh, numerous you know, papers or even books. Uh, what is the one do you think that's the best uh, intro to Gilbert Ling's work?
1: Yeah, so if you go, I believe it's, I don't know if it's gnling.com or you can look up Gilbert Ling online. Like here, I can find it. Um, essentially, he has a website. Uh, that's It's gilbertling.org, right? Okay. Uh, and he has a list of his papers here. And there's like ones where it's like, a 400 word summary of the association induction hypothesis, 42 page. He has, he has different lengths of summaries, but I think that the, um, and then he has a, he has a book on cell water, I believe. Um, he has this polarized oriented multi-layer theory of what cell water it's It's a really convoluted thing, but the, the general idea uh, can be proved very easily. So he did an experiment. Essentially the idea is that the membrane is not needed. The cell membrane uh, does not function to do, like regulate the cell physiology, it's not really even needed to have a cell be organized or condensed. Like it's just it's just not necessary. the The thing that showed this the best, I think, is um, you know one of the main functions of the cell is to accumulate potassium and use that to to do things. And he he showed that he he uh, took just proteins and he put it in a sack, like not a membrane, but a sack, like a dialysis membrane, and with no pumps on the outside of it. And then he added the so-called absorbent which, uh, adsorbent, which can be, you know, something like ATP or progesterone or hormones or whatever. He added, he added, uh, protons in this case and the sac started accumulating potassium, right? So he, he showed the function of a cell, like the main function of a cell that all of his opponents said, like needed a membrane to happen. He showed that without a membrane and somehow people still believe in the, in the people who got the Nobel prizes and, and think that, you know, we need a membrane to, for, for cellular function. But, uh, you know, it's not super actionable information for most people. I think the actionable thing about that is that, um, if you have high energy states, you get this high energy state of water. And, uh, the only way you can really do that without like, um, doing anything crazy or doing some discovery efforts is probably improving, uh, your thyroid function so that you increase your carbon dioxide, you increase your ATP and you decrease your lactic acid production and that like create, and you decrease your estrogen as well. So those, those things uh, tend towards making a nice, relaxed, uh, structured state of water in the cell.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. And you bring up thyroid. This is the last question I want to leave you with. You mentioned that it, you know, there's an argument to be made that thyroid supplementation, whether in the form of you know, desiccated thyroid or even uh, you know, relatively bioidentical T3, uh, T3, maybe T3 and T4, it's actually, you know, more natural, I think, was the vernacular you used. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you explain that a little bit? Just, you know, what is the argument to be made for, you know, mass thyroid supplementation?
1: Yeah, so I think that there are, like, a lot of natural sources of thyroid hormone that people don't know, like milk, for example. I think that the casein binds a lot of thyroid pro- thyroid hormone, actually, and, and you can isolate. There were, There were some papers before where they isolated thyroid hormone from milk. And it wasn't in insignificant quantities. It was like a lot of thyroid hormone. So like even just drinking like raw milk might give you some like thyroid replacement. There was a, there were a, a lot of like accounts of people, um, you know, in, in uh, like, I think it was like the old Tibetan chronicle. Like I was like kind of researching into this, like what is the history of like thyroid consumption? There were ceremonial like hunts that people did on yaks in like Mongolia and uh, they they would give, like, the entire gullet cut to, like, one person. So, so so presumably, like, back in these times, like, the victor would get, like, these valuable cuts and just, like, eat an entire thyroid, which is, like, pretty crazy. Like yak. So, like, they didn't, they didn't like, cut everything up, like, a little bit and have, like, pay, like, pay attention to, to uh, you know, oh, we need to, like, remove this tiny little part, it didn't seem. They just, like, gave the whole neck to somebody. So um, I think that there's, like, historical precedent of this. Uh, there, there's people back in like, you know, beginning of written history, like 3000 BC or something in China, where uh, they're like, it's one of the first reported uh, ailments is is goiter, essentially the enlargement of the thyroid. And they were like looking for uh, treatments for this. Some of the first treatments were, you know, aside from high iodine sources, which they figured out, which was uh, like kelp and seaweed. I mean, obviously they didn't know what iodine was back then, but but like they were saying, eat these like sea, sea uh, grasses. And, uh, they, they also gave deer thyroid to people as like a treatment. So th- this is like one of the oldest medical interventions, like that's just an active drug to, you know, treat a disease in like a pretty solid way. Um, so I, I think that like, yeah, there's a lot of environmental, just like normal, uh, places that you would get thyroid if either eating nose to tail or just drinking milk, uh, that like your body probably like your lineage evolutionarily probably has seen thyroid replacement in its past.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. You know, I've, I've had a single dose of 25 milligrams of uh, T3 and it was quite incredible. You know, I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to lie. It makes me feel great. One of the reasons I like being down in a super tropical environment uh, is because it kind of mimics that feeling that I had on that T3 just, just naturally. But, um, and anab- I really appreciate you coming on. This has been Incredibly deep and informative. Uh, it's good to put a voice behind the name as well. I see that you're working on this new um, website, Longest Levers. Uh, love mm-hmm. the UI first and foremost. It's really cool. You know, in a hyperstimulatory world, it's nice to have just s- simple uh, text files and HTMLs. Uh, what's your objective with that? You know, what do you want that to be? Uh, you know, a few months or years down the line.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I just want a place where people can click on something and figure out like a menu of options of things they can do to address their problems. So I just want it to be like as simple as possible. Just some, some plain text protocols. I I'm kind of bullish on the idea of curation. Like there's so many people like there's, there's a couple, um, you know, there's like forums where anyone can post something and then there's like moderation, like, Hey, you can't post that. Or there's blogs where people just post their own information, but I want to, I want people to like send me information and send me just like a text file. And then I curate the information, I make sure it's something that's like high quality. And then and then I just like post it in this like really nicely curated library of of information. And I want that to be like free for people. Like I don't want to make money off of that. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I get like a lot of DMs about people asking for for help with stuff and I and I tend to respond and try and try and help them out. But like having just like a place where they can figure out their own issues really quickly could increase the impact that I have and uh, just like helping people figure out their health. So, so that's awesome. the goal with that. Just like some plain text, non-trivial protocols. And I want other people to send me like literally just a pastebin link if they have ideas that could help people.
0: Well, that's incredible. I really appreciate what you're doing for this space. You know, I love all the de- ideas that you're throwing out there and, you know, sparking discussions around everybody. You can find Anabology on Twitter. He's quite prolific there. Um, anything else that you're working on currently?
1: Oh, no. I mean, just DM me if you want to, uh, be friends or collaborate in any way. So (laughs) awesome.
0: Well, I'll link all of those below. Once again, I appreciate you coming on and hopefully I will talk to you soon.
1: Yep. Talk to you soon.